Hey everybody! You are listening to the Creative BioLevs podcast, the show that introduces the basics about stem cells and their broad applications. Please contact us if you have any questions or suggestions. And don't forget to subscribe to follow the latest updates. Ladies and gentlemen in the audience, we extend a warm welcome to you for tuning in to our program on time every Saturday night. Today, our guest on the podcast who will be sharing insights is Dr. Benjamin Smith, a familiar name to all of us. Let's greet him with our heartfelt applause. Welcome, Benjamin. Thank you, Connie, and good evening. It's wonderful to see you again. I appreciate your gracious invitation, and I'm truly thrilled to be here. Thank you once again for joining us. Let's dive into today's discussion. We're all well aware of the crucial roles that vision and hearing play in human life. However, both these senses decline with age due, in part, to the loss of cells in the primary sensory organs, our eyes and ears. Additionally, the prevalence of disease-related genes affecting one or both senses is relatively high. Fortunately, the potential of stem cells holds the promise of replacing some of these declining cells, either in their original locations or through transplantation. Over the last decade, numerous exciting breakthroughs in stem cell research have emerged from various parts of the body. Subsequently, more effort has been directed toward identifying stem cells in the retina and the ear. So, why don't we begin by delving into our understanding of retinal progenitor and stem cells? Certainly. The retina serves as a critical model for comprehending the anatomy, physiology, and development of the central nervous system. Most studies investigating retinal development have primarily focused on the production of retinal neurons and glia from retinal progenitor cells. Lineage analysis reveals that these cells maintain multipotency throughout development, capable of giving rise to both neurons and glia, often within a single terminal cell division. However, retinal progenitor cells don't seem to possess totipotency, except for the earliest progenitor cells, which can potentially give rise to all retinal cell types. Furthermore, the proliferation of retinal progenitor cells doesn't appear to occur in substantial numbers in vivo or after being cultured under various conditions. Recent research has aimed at identifying true retinal stem cells, following the paths established in the search for stem cells within the central nervous system. One approach involves identifying mitotic cells that generate retinal neurons in adults in vivo, while the other method focuses on culturing cells with growth factors. Both approaches are showing promising initial results, although further research is essential to provide more conclusive evidence. That's intriguing. Are there any significant findings related to retinal stem cells? Absolutely. It's worth revisiting the organization originating from the optic vesicle, as this understanding sets the stage for some fascinating observations about retinal stem cells. The optic vesicle emerges as an outpouching of the neural tube at the intersection of the diencephalon and telencephalon. During the formation of the neural tube, the vesicle initially protrudes as a simple evagination, followed shortly by invagination to create a bilayered optic cup. The outer layer of this cup goes on to develop into non-neural structures, including the retinal pigmented epithelium and other supportive eye structures. 
The retinal pigmented epithelium, comprising a monolayer of epithelial cells, contains pigments that capture stray light passing through the retina. It serves multiple support functions to facilitate the continued light capture by photopigments and opsins. These functions include specialized tasks like the isomerization of trans to cis retinal. Furthermore, the retinal pigmented epithelium expresses a multitude of specific gene products. If I'm understanding correctly, the retinal pigmented epithelium originates from the outer layer of the optic cup. So, what tissue originates from the inner layer of the optic cup? Is it the retina? Yes, you're correct. The retina is the neurosensory tissue originating from the inner layer of the optic cup. In other words, the neural retina forms from the inner wall of the optic cup. The primary sensory cells are photoreceptors, which include rods and cones. Rods function in dim light, while cones are active in daylight. Additionally, various interneurons are present, such as horizontal cells, amacrine cells, and bipolar cells. The retina also includes one type of output neuron, the retinal ganglion cell. Another essential cell is the Muller glial cell, which spans the retinal layers. During early retinal neurogenesis, retinal progenitor cells give rise to different retinal neurons in a consistent pattern. This process usually starts with the generation of ganglion cells and concludes with the creation of rod photoreceptors, bipolar interneurons, and Muller glia. This cell production initiates at the retina center and progresses towards the periphery or margin. In amphibians and teleost fish, the margin's growth continues throughout the animal's life in a region known as the ciliary marginal zone. Additionally, in fish, there's a later wave of rod photoreceptor production as the retina expands. The eye's complexity is truly remarkable. What should we know about the retina? Despite its significance as a stem cell-rich region, the developmental sequence at the retina's periphery is intricate. The margin forms as a fold following the invagination of the primary optic vesicle. Initial simple folds arise at the periphery where the potential retinal pigmented epithelium and retina meet. Subsequent to this, unique morphogenetic events occur to give rise to several anterior eye support structures, including transdifferentiation. This process leads to the development of the ciliary body, consisting of the pars placata and pars plana, as well as the iris. The pars plana and placata each feature two epithelial layers, one pigmented, the other unpigmented. These layers serve as attachment points for the lens zonules or suspensory ligaments. The unpigmented epithelial layer of the pars placata and plana is continuous with the retina, while the pigmented layer connects with the retinal pigmented epithelium. This close alignment allows for the regulation of secretions from the ciliary body, which is rich in a leaky type of blood vessel due to its high vascularity. Besides secreting aqueous and vitreous humor, the ciliary body plays a role in lens shape adjustment. Neurocrest-derived muscles develop within the ciliary body and control the lens ligaments for accommodation. I understand. You briefly mentioned a crucial link between the iris, ciliary body, and optic cup formation. Could you elaborate on the functions and attributes of the iris within the eye tissue? The iris serves as a mechanism to control the amount of light entering the eye by expanding and contracting. It functions like a shutter.
It comprises a pigmented epithelial layer originating from the optic cup's margin, contiguous with the retinal pigmented epithelium. Additionally, there's an initially unpigmented epithelial layer, the inner or posterior layer, that's connected to the retina. Over time, this inner layer gains pigmentation, further enhanced by neurocrest-derived melanocytes. Notably, the pupil's opening and closing is orchestrated by muscles derived from the optic cup's margin. This is the only ectoderm-derived muscle in the body, a result of transdifferentiation. Original pigmented cells detach from the epithelial sheet, proliferate, and transform into muscles. Thus, the retinal margin takes on a multifunctional role. Most of the different cell types originate from the early optic cup's outer and inner walls. Your explanation is quite enlightening. I've heard that classical embryological experiments involving birds, fish, amphibians, and mammals offer insight into eye tissue plasticity. Could you share some examples? Certainly. For instance, removing most of the retina, but not all, leads to transdifferentiation of the retinal pigmented epithelium into retina. This capability persists until embryonic day 4 in chickens and day 14 in mice. However, in uroideals, this process remains possible throughout life. In chickens, fibroblast growth factors have been found to induce this phenomenon in retinal pigmented epithelium cultures. In vivo, the role of fibroblast growth factor in distinguishing between the retina and retinal pigmented epithelium isn't entirely clear. Nevertheless, introducing fibroblast growth factor 8 in vivo has been proven to initiate transdifferentiation. A remarkable process is Wolfian regeneration in newts, where the dorsal iris can regenerate the lens. This iris is originally from surface ectoderm, not the optic vesicle, setting it apart from birds and mammals. These examples highlight the potential for terminally differentiated cells to retain developmental flexibility. Interestingly, Pigmented cells originating from the optic cup's region exhibit extensive developmental potential in adult mammals. These cells serve as a source of retinal stem cells. Based on your presentation, it seems that optic vesicles generate diverse cell types capable of transdifferentiation. I'm confident today's content has been informative and captivating, shedding light on the enigmatic aspects of the retinal vesicle. That concludes our discussion for today. A heartfelt thank you to Dr. Smith for his insightful scientific sharing. To our listeners, thank you for joining us. Stay tuned for more engaging topics in our upcoming programs. Until next time. Thank you. I look forward to our next meeting.